you know, end of life care is, is the meeting of two specialists. You've got the healthcare professional that is the specialist in the healthcare information, but then you have the patient who is a specialist in their life. And actually you're equal partners. And the, pa the patient, the person has absolutely the right to ask the healthcare professional, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. I don't understand. Please, could you go over it? Ask questions. You can challenge what's been, what's been given to you if you haven't understood it or you haven't heard it. Welcome to the Restore Podcast. Uh, I'm here today with a colleague and friend, Caroline Phillips. Caroline is a, um, a colleague from uh, London and is also a paramedic. And today the topic of, of subject is end of life care. So why end of life care? Well, what we wanted to do on the podcast is really deconstruct some of the both terminology and some of the myths of end of life care and really start to unearth some truths. So um, I'm gonna let Caroline introduce herself in a second, um, but fundamentally what we wanna do in this episode is just demystify what to expect, um, some of the challenges and some of the things from Caroline's perspective that, that work well within end of life care. So Caroline, could I get you to introduce yourself and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into what end of life care is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Owen, for having me. So uh, as Owen mentioned, my background is as a paramedic and I've worked in London for just about 15 years now. Um, but I also have got some experience working in hospice and also in a hospital for patients with motor neuron disease. So I think really my experience in terms of clinical work and patient facing work is from both ends of the spectrum. So I've seen patients who um, have sadly died uh, unexpectedly or they were expected to die but perhaps not quite in the way that was anticipated and I've responded to them on an emergency ambulance but I've also really had the privilege of working with patients actually both in voluntary capacities so I've uh, provided massage therapy for patients in a hospice in London and I've also worked with patients with motor neuron disease and both of those groups of patients were in their final days or hours of life um, in a very different, very controlled, very um, really pleasant uh, environment. And so that's really where I come up from a patient perspective, patient facing perspective. Uh, and in the last couple of years, uh, two and a half years of my role within the ambulance service, I've actually been working in a role which is a partnership with Macmillan Cancer Support and they have funded myself and a couple of other colleagues, a very small team to carry out really some service development work to try and upskill and improve the end of life care that our clinicians in London deliver when they're attending to patients on ambulances. So that's me in a nutshell. So Caroline, people listening to this that have heard the, the phrase end of life care and or palliative care, both um, quite distinct terms and both used synonymously, but could you just really unpack what end of life care means and or what palliative care means? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I think you're right. They're quite often uh, used interchangeably um, and sometimes that causes some confusion. But from a medical perspective, end-of-life care really talks about those patients who are likely to be within their final 12 months of life. And I sort of emphasise the word likely because it's very, very mm. tricky even for very experienced palliative care professionals sometimes to really prognosticate um, exactly when a patient will die. But really it's about patients who are likely to be within their final 12 months of life. Uh, and we're not just talking about cancer, which I think often springs to mind. It's about all of those different life limiting conditions. So it could be somebody with chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. Uh, it could be somebody with chronic heart failure. It could be somebody with more of a neurological condition like motor neurone disease, Parkinson's, MS, but also of course, far more frequently what we see in particular with an aging population um, are those patients who've got dementia and or frailty. Uh, we see far more of, of those types of um, conditions and those, all of those conditions, as well as uh, renal failure, liver failure, sometimes HIV and some other neurological conditions, they are all life-limiting conditions. And at some stage during the progression of that illness, they will reach their final few months of life and their final 12 months is end of life. In terms of palliative care, mm. palliative care is a uh, really a specialism in itself. Um, and palliative, I mean, palliate really comes from the word, uh, the Latin to cloak, and it's all about cloaking symptoms. So palliative care is about really trying to allow a person to live their life to the fullest in the most comfortable way alongside their condition. And palliative care experts really come into to patients' care when they've got quite complex symptoms. So clearly not everyone with dementia and frailty and heart failure will need palliative care input. However, some patients with complex conditions will need palliative care support and the palliative care team will perhaps dip in and dip out of their care for many years if necessary. I'm thinking really particularly those with very complex neurological conditions like MS, which can go on for some time, Parkinson's, uh, and, and that's where palliative care comes in. And, and palliative care is not only about the physical, it's very, very much about the emotional, if there's any religious needs and preferences, um, but certainly the spiritual, it's about the psychological well-being of a person because in end-of-life care, or those with life-limiting conditions, it's very well understood now and, and really from the literature has proven that an awful lot of physical symptoms are experienced as a result of unmet psychological, social, spiritual needs. Um, and so it's a, a very broad subject, not just physical, a whole holistic approach to care. And it extends beyond the patient and actually into the patient's nearest and dearest as well. So for example, if a patient is under a palliative care team, they will, when they die, the family will often be offered some kind of spiritual support if it's, if it's relevant and even before, if, even before they die as well. So that's worth noting. Uh, that's fantastic. And that speaks to quite a holistic approach, which uh, is understandable because I think fundamentally as individuals, we are holistic and one area um, bleeds over into another, both, you know, from, and you're never just a 
a physical entity you're you, you are spiritual and or psychological as well so that that very very much makes makes sense from my perspective so caroline just looking at some of your ex anecdotal experience just treating these patients as a, as a paramedic coming in to what might be quite a fragile environment when you're when you're coming in to see a patient for those people listening to this who who don't necessarily practice medicine or aren't necessarily familiar with 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 how that might look as a as a paramedic how how is how has it been experienced how have you experienced it is 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 there always an anticipation or just uh, from the family or just sometimes this feel like it's still a shock even though it's expected what's what's the mood and what's the what's your what's your reflections mm, I mean I think it's so variable isn't it and I mean you'll know from your clinical practice as well it's just so completely variable um in terms of in terms of patients really before they before they die they're quite poorly I think the the sheer fact that we have been called usually is because something has happened which is unanticipated by the family. Either it's a symptom or there's some sort of breakdown in social support or there is um, some kind of need which isn't really being met. And we are, we, we always turn up really, don't we? When you call 999, we are really the people that are always available with 24 seven. So I think there's always an element where some kind of crisis has happened and that's why we've been contacted. In terms of attending patients who have died, uh, again, it's usually quite unexpected. I think when services are in place and they're in place well and they're available where appropriate, you know, most people will die at home or in the nursing home or the care home and we won't be contacted at all. It's when something has happened which is unexpected, which is why the, the person has picked up the phone and called us. So yeah, I think quite often um, it's a case of there's an unexpected or crisis situation which is happening. Indeed. And so looking at some of these challenges you've seen families go through, in your mind and experience, what might help mitigate some of these some of these challenges from um, and what might they they want to expect from a, a paramedic in attendance? I think really what what families want to expect is for us to come in and to take some control of the situation. I think you know if we're coming back down to a really sort of emotional level these patients and their families they have really lost their sense of control in the situation they have been given information you know it might have been some years ago it might have been some months or some weeks ago or or very short you know sometimes we sadly see patients that have been in hospital been discharged previously very well and then have deteriorated very quickly and that's a very big shock for the family uh, but I think really what it comes down to is a sense of lack of control over the situation and what's happening to their their loved one uh, or to themselves and I think what we do and actually what we're quite good at doing is coming in and I don't want to say taking charge because end of life care is all about the patient and the carers and what their preferences are, but we are quite good at sort of getting things done. 
Um, and I think that that's really reassuring. And certainly when we've had feedback from, when we've done quite a bit of work with um, patient public involvement. And when we've had feedback from those who have had some contact with the ambulance service and their loved one has now died, quite often it's the things that we don't actually think of really doing very much, which are really helpful. And they are things like just being there. You know, there was a panic, there was a crisis. Someone showed up usually pretty quickly and we have been there to be present with them, to witness what's happening. They're not alone. And someone sometimes even just making a cup of tea. And I think sometimes we think, oh, we really didn't do very much there. But actually that is what the carer or the family member often remembers. Um, and that goes for adult patients as well as pediatric patients. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, that's that's really where we come into. I mean, of course, we can provide some symptom management, symptom control. We can liaise with other services and, and get those people involved if necessary. But I think in terms of how families can or, or patients or people in general can really prepare for things like this, it's making sure that you, as much as you want to, you understand what is happening, you understand what's likely to happen. And I think this is really a broader concept in that as society, we really need to improve our, improve our death literacy. You know, as you know, like we don't sit now with patients who've died in, in homes mourning for a period of a few days before they go off to, to be buried or cremated. We don't have that exposure to death like we used to. Um, we don't care for those who, generally don't care for those who are dying in their own homes as much. And I think that we need to really improve as a society how we talk about this, how, and most importantly, how we make plans so that we know what to expect as much as possible and we know where to go for support and making plans um, in advance is so important. So you make a few really good points there, Caroline. And one of the you know, things you're, you're saying, which, which really resonates with me is around that, the, you know, as paramedics, we always come to, come to a scene or come to a patient in the mindset of fixing things, but actually with these, patients with end-of-life care it's not necessarily about fixing the situation or indeed fixing the disease it's actually more holistic and th there's there's a shift in, in perspective because it might be making the patient more comfortable it might be an appreciation that there's going to be um, a deranged uh, a whole array of um, numbers and values that we see on a screen that we're not necessarily comfortable with but that doesn't mean we can a fix them or b we should take them to hospital so it's it's it, you're, you're right it's a mindset a mindset shift really mm -hmm. and something you also said around um when you were talking earlier around prognostication of, of a condition and 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 actually there's, there's so so much disparity in how the human body works and how it copes with uh chronic disease it's so hard to future future tell almost and, and very much from a, an, a, a critical care perspective, I would turn up on scene and, and, and I have a, a distraught family member saying they were meant to have six months more or they were meant to have a year and a half more. This is what, what, what's happened. And 
I can't answer that. Well, the, the, the question, the, the, the answer to that question is that you, you can't prognosticate. You can't future tell how a disease process is going to, is, is going to evolve. But the back end of that question, the back end of that statement would, would be a question to you, Caroline, would be around what patterns can loved ones expect to see with, with, with dying relatives? Albeit maybe not phys physiological, maybe not physical patterns, but what 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 patterns are present that 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 people could be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly before the what we call the terminal phase, so really in the weeks, months leading up to a patient's death or a family member or a person's death one of the biggest indicators and something that is probably very difficult to see if you're seeing this person every day and you're looking after them every day. Um, but one of the biggest things that, that you would notice is that a patient person will become increasingly dependent on their care needs. So really, really basic care needs, which they aren't able to, to carry out themselves. So it might be that, you know, I'm thinking if I, can use a per if I can use a personal experience, which is probably quite common to a lot of people. My grandmother at the moment, she's 94, you know, for the last few years, she's needed some support in terms of her higher level functions. So for example, reading her mail or dealing with her financial bills, et cetera. I mean, you, that, that is really, you don't think of it as being you know needing care but actually she can't do those things that that we would be able to do ourselves then she needed a cleaner she needed a cleaner to come in help sort out her flat etc uh, then she had a couple of infections a couple of falls uh, and then she needed some walking aids and then she needed some carers more full time to come and help look after feed her uh, bathe her etc um, all of those things actually, which you, if you're with somebody or you're looking after them or seeing them every day, you might not necessarily, they're not very dramatic because they happen over a course of time. But actually, if somebody is needing help and care and support for those things that you would be able to carry out normally uh, as, a, as a fully able um, individual, those are the, the most obvious things. In terms of actually the, the final few hours or days of life, what we tend to see is, and I'm speaking very generalistically here, but what we tend to see is that a patient will spend more time in bed. They will be really sleeping quite a lot of the time, quite withdrawn um, socially. So they might not have the energy to talk so much, or they might really be having periods of unconsciousness and then some lucid periods and you're not quite sure if they're sleeping or if they're not. And they will tend to stop eating food because the body doesn't need food anymore. And I think that can be really tricky for certainly some people who care for, for you know, family members or even carers who have known that person quite well for quite a long time because food is such an important thing for some people in some cultures. And it can be really hard when a person doesn't want to eat anymore might not want to drink anymore stop going to the bathroom um, and over time the person will become more and more sleepy uh, with less periods of awakeness and then their body will start to slowly shut down 
their breathing may change, it may slow down, sometimes it might be a bit fast, sometimes it might be a bit rattly, which is a bit distressing. Um, but eventually the breathing, the heart will all slow down and, and that will be the person's death. That is very generally speaking, clearly some conditions will have a slightly different outcome. Um, and, and, you know, that, that really is quite a broad way of describing death, but I think it's the way that it happens most commonly. Um, and it's something that is, is really not something to be feared. Um, easier said than done, but it's not, uh, it's, it's normally a very peaceful um, process. Samin, you've both been to scenes where and to visit to see patients where this is an example of uh, a multitude of information uh, that comes to patients and i totally understand this when someone's feeling overwhelmed that they're not necessarily able to take information on board and as a, as a micro example of that i mean you've both been to scene where the patient's not end-of-life care but you ask they've been to see their gp and you say, what did the GP say? And they say, well, nothing. And I guarantee you that the, the, the patient didn't sit in front of the GP and with silence, there was definitely some discourse, some, some interaction, but it, it illustrates to me that, that especially under duress, and, and again, you don't have to be end of life care to be under duress, but there's a, there's a real proclivity to, to not uh, absorb information. And so the question on the back of that statement, Caroline, would be how, how best can people assimilate sort of multiple pieces of information from different end-of-life care specialists when, mm -hmm. the, 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 when the process itself is quite overwhelming? Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think if you're under specialist teams, um, I mean, even if you're not under specialist teams, if you're an elderly person with a degree of frailty um, and perhaps a little bit of dementia is a little bit forgetful and has got multiple different appointments, it's quite confusing at the best of times. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, as healthcare professionals, we are getting better at trying to coordinate, you know, a big priority for end of life care is about coordinating care so that this, the person isn't having to go and do multiple things at multiple different places and so that information is shared. And as a health service, I think we're getting a lot better with that. But you're absolutely right. As an individual who has received a bit of bad news or even just has an awful lot of stuff going on, you know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes even us, you know, we've got a lot of stuff going on in terms of managing our work or whether you're at home and you've got lots of different things going on with your kids and making dinner and doing your working from home on Zoom, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's really hard to take in information and particularly if it is some kind of bad news. And I think, you know, there's a really good example actually that one of my colleagues, Georgina, she uses in teaching quite a lot. And it's a great way of thinking about it. Um, which is actually, if you think about a time when you've heard some shocking news, even if it's not been about yourself. So say for example, you know, where were you when Princess Diana died or when 9-11 happened? You quite often will remember visuals or you will remember uh, where you were or who you were with, but actually the words on the news or the words of someone telling you, it, it, it's usually just disappeared somewhere into thin air. So I think, 
you know, it's really important to bear that in mind. And especially if you're a healthcare professional delivering that information, to be bearing that in mind, you know, give pieces of information that are vital and then pause and wait for it to be absorbed. I think as a, as a person who's going and receiving healthcare, maybe take somebody with you who's not quite as stressed, maybe take a relative or somebody who can come with you as an, as an advocate, but also who can come and listen to the information which is being given so that when you go home, what on earth happened there? They can give you some pieces of the puzzle ask for things like leaflets, ask for things like websites so you can actually have those things written down. Even take a notepad yourself, take a notepad to your appointment and write down some of the key points. There's nothing wrong with that. And certainly, certainly as the patient, and this is a, a, great, a great quote again, which I've pinched from somebody else, but it's great. You know, end of life care is, is the meeting of two specialists. You've got the healthcare professional that is the specialist in the healthcare information, but then you have the patient who is a specialist in their life. And actually you are equal partners and the, pa the patient, the person has absolutely the right to ask the healthcare professional. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. I don't understand. Please, could you go over it? Ask questions. You can challenge what's been, what's been given to you if you haven't understood it or you haven't heard it. Um, so those would be my top pieces of advice, really. I really like that. And I, I think there's there's really room to pause and think about that because people are people are experts in their own life and the meeting of two minds and 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 meeting people on that level playing field is 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 powerful. But like you said actually as well, getting an advocate into the room and also something I really like what you just said there, Caroline, around uh, having websites that you can go over and um, after after the consultation, especially if it's an initial consultation and it's some profound it's some profound information about a chronic disease that that, that a person may have, going back to that information, uh, you know, albeit websites, um, support groups, or or, um, or teams of individuals that you can then revisit and start to build up a bigger picture um, over, over time, because you're quite right, information that, that comes at you isn't retained when, especially when you're in extremists, when it's, you know, your fight or flight mechanism, your, your amygdala response kicks in and it's it's not retained. So I think those, those points are fantastic. Okay, so coming on to bad news, Caroline, and that's a good, that's a good um, foray into bad news because we've just mentioned it there. Um, what are some of the, twisting the question slightly and just asking, what are some of the nuggets of wisdom or uh, top tips could you overlay uh, into breaking bad news and what people can expect? Uh, and preferentially, how, do people, how could we, break this bad news to people, life-changing news in a way that they can in some which way assimilate it? Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the first thing to say is that you always come to breaking bad news as, as a hu human to human. And I think sometimes we get so worried about how we're going to do this, but actually people can tell when you're genuine, people can tell when you're um, empathetic, people People can sense that. And I think that goes a really long 
way, certainly in terms of reassuring healthcare professionals who are thinking, oh my goodness, I've never done this before. I don't know what to say. I don't know what words to use. Actually, just coming at it as a human with empathy means so much. It really does. And the news is bad. There's no way of not making the news bad. That's the point. And so really the, the key things are, and in an ideal situation, certainly what usually isn't available pre-hospitally, but in an ideal situation, if you had a quiet environment, free from distractions, you're both on the same eye level, etc. It's quite tricky pre-hospitally in a, in a manic scene, but actually if you can be in a, a quieter room, if you can turn your radio down, turn your phone off um, and, and, and really try and set the atmosphere, that's helpful because as we discussed, it's really hard to take in information. So if you can try and remove those distractions, which will be overwhelmingly loud when somebody is stressed, um, that's really helpful. I think it also sets the person up for something, something's coming now. There's a delivery of news now that's coming that I'm, I'm not gonna want to hear, like we're really prepping for this. And then the second thing is, is as the person delivering news, and I think really this goes for any, any bad news, you can use it in lots of different situations. Um, I've certainly used it in teaching before um, and assessments and job recruitment and things like that, but is, is providing a bit of what we call a warning shot. So it could be something like, I'm really sorry, but I have some bad news. Could be that simple. Or I'm really sorry, I need to talk to you about this. And it's quite important. I'm afraid it's not going to be good news for you. Something along those lines. And pausing and waiting for that person to prepare. Just, just a little, you know, it doesn't have to be minutes, but just a little pause, waiting so they're ready, they're prepped, right, focus. What's she trying to tell me? And then when you're delivering the bad news, I think particularly in the instances of when someone has died, we have to use the words, and you know this, Ellen, like we have to use the words, I'm afraid your mother has died. If you know the person's name, brilliant. I'm afraid Lacey has died. Um, I'm really sorry to tell you this. And then wait. The worst thing really is using terminology which you think might be softer, but actually leaves room for question. So they've gone to a better place, have they? Uh, where is that place? Um, what, you know, the shops, where have they gone? Um, I'm afraid I'm afraid we've lost your, your mother. She's not lost, she's not lost anywhere. And that can really be confusing for people. Um, really it's using, using clear terminology. I'm afraid your mother has died and then waiting. And then for me, it is, do you have any immediate questions? And if they don't, then okay, I'm gonna come back to you in a minute with what the next steps are going to be. Because I need that person to post, there's no point in me saying, right, next, well, now what we're gonna do is we're gonna arrange the undertaker or da 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 no none of that's going in um so i think yeah key messages are warning shots um being deliberate with your choice of words and absolutely pausing you don't need to fill the silence it's really uncomfortable to sit in silence but you don't need to fill it just pause and let that person assimilate the, the information that you've given to them
So Caroline, could you speak to meta programs um, around what they are and why death is not a normal meta program that people operate? Yeah, sure. I mean, quite honestly, I don't know a great deal about meta programs, but what I understand of them is that really it's sort of a subconscious, almost software of your of your brain and your and your person's behaviour, um, all of the experiences that you've had in the past and the way in which you're brought up and the relationships that you have with other people and how subconsciously that then drives your behaviours and your thinking and, and the way you react to certain things. And I think uh, in terms of, you know, the way that we experience people reacting to deaths is, is so vast, isn't it, Owen? You know, it's so vast and it's so dependent on the situation. Clearly, if we see a patient pre-hospitally who has had an unexpected death, you know, that's very traumatic, very different to somebody who actually has been looking after a patient with motor neurone disease for the last 18 months and they've seen their loved one lose the ability to move, to speak, to eat, to swallow, and then eventually to breathe. You know, it's a hugely different situation. And, you know, I think I think the one thing that I've learned over time is that you just can't, or you can't really expect or anticipate any kind of reaction. I think people will come to this with so many different things, situation, previous deaths that they have experienced of loved ones, how long ago they were, um, what this particular situation is, what the relationship is with that person. It's all so situational. Um, and, and yeah, I would just say that it, it, you can't predict it. Certainly we can't predict it coming in and not really knowing that person. I think sometimes people are definitely relieved. I think they really are. I think some people, they've been caring for a parent who's been in a in a care home for two years and you know they've got dementia and it's advanced and they can't really talk to them and they need all their care doing for them. You know, sometimes there's a, an element of relief there. I think I've certainly experienced that with family members and my parents, um, not in an sort of a cruel way, but I think that's, you know, you, that is sometimes expected. Um, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you have some people that are um, very different. And I think cultures affect that as well. Um, you know, again, you know, in terms of metaprocessing and what people have experienced in the past and what they've witnessed in the past, come from a culture where keening so you know really audibly being quite sort of wailing and and um you know moving around and um sort of falling to the floor you know can happen um sometimes very stereotypically you know english people are a bit more stiff upper lip and you know might have a tear and that'll be it and won't really say much about it so i think it's very dependent on the person so that's, that's fantastic, Caroline. And, and quite rightly, as you said, the, these meta programs are these subconscious programs that we run on a day to day basis, like getting dressed, like brushing your teeth, like uh, having a wash. Um, but rarely do we practice these subconscious programs or meta programs for, for death. And, and you're right, maybe, maybe never, mm -hmm. uh, or, or maybe once or twice when you've, when you've seen your uh, under experienced death. Of a family member or distant member, but 
therefore, because we don't run these subconscious programs of death on a day-to-day or week-to-week or, or year-to-year basis, a really strange occurrence happens, which I've heard you talk about with the guest and which I've seen and experienced actually uh, through the death of my sister-in-law when she died at 27. And this, this experience is of anchoring. And what you do is you mentally anchor and, and the, the brain does it, I think, as a survival mechanism to, to uh, cause we're anchoring on a day-to-day basis. And what an anchor is, is it's a mental thought. It's an association of, of a place or a smell or a feeling based on an emotion. So you could, I could squirt a, a, a perfume at you or a smell at you and, and that smell might be strongly anchored and associated and bring you right back to childhood memories, to a relationship memory, to something. And so we are always anchoring. Now with this massive surge of emotion and um, pivotal life message, life or death message your brain anchors to that um that moment fundamentally so that any music any tonality any what you're wearing it it remembers and i I think it's i think it's an evolutionary concept so that you can that you can um notice and recognize danger because fundamentally it's a it's a it's a it's a dangerous or risk you, we are risk averse individuals, but it's a risky message and, a, and a, something we want to avoid. But the, the reason I'm saying this is because I think you have to be not only as a, a paramedic, a doctor, a nurse, but as a, as a loved one, so mindful of your words to another loved one and or the person who's experiencing your death, because they will remember those words and then remember the tonality Mm-hmm. The, the brain goes into automatic record mode mm-hmm. and and for years and years and years to come 20 30 years down the line a song that was playing that day or a smell or a sound will will trigger mm-hmm. and it will and and it will trigger that anchoring memory and um and and so it's it's it, once we know how the brain works we can then adjust our responses accordingly so true though isn't it because even you know when you think about the process of grief you know quite often people won't want to go to a certain shop or they won't want to you know go to a certain hospital or they won't want to um do something because it so reminds them of the person that, that has died and it's so painful but on the other hand sometimes people find things like that really really comforting so you know if you always had pizza with your mum on a Tuesday night and and then you know your mum's died you might continue that because sometimes that anchoring is really comforting um and whether that's subconscious or conscious you know some of them will be some of them won't be but uh it's you know it, it really runs through the process of um of grief too so uh, looking at a few things that we've mentioned already caroline around loss aversion and we know that loss aversion is a fundamental bias in our lives that you know we're, we're far more detracted by the one dislike or one negative comment than the 10 positive comments on social media or otherwise could you speak to the sort of oscillation of emotion in the last moments of, of, of life from a relative's perspective? Because in these moments, loss aversion is profound. 
because mm. you're just about to lose the most significant potentially the, the most significant person to you so it's mm. a compounded loss aversion yeah I mean I think that in terms of our exposure to patients when when 999 is dialed and we attend is often when it's an when it is an expected death it's often that you know that oscillation I guess um you know I'm hypothesizing here but it's that oscillation between acceptance but also absolute terror this can't be happening and that's why we're called you know we've been to cases where patients have had all of the services in place that they could ever need they've got the medications there the the family or the carers are trained to use the medications but for some reason they they just can't they're, they're worried they're panicked and they call us and and I think it's absolutely understandable isn't it if I can sort of backtrack a little bit before that time I think it's really worth noting that the oscillation around loss I mean really is is part of grief work um but for some people and again I use an example of a, a patient with dementia or Alzheimer's you know some people that grief work starts long before the patient has died or is dying because the grief is the process of responding to a loss and so you have somebody who you love who has Alzheimer's and is slowly losing their capacity and their personality. Maybe they're developing a different type of personality, which isn't perhaps one that you uh, like. Um, you know, you're already, that's your living loss, really. You're already starting to grieve that person. And the process of oscillation really talks where whatever you know time frame you're on whether the, the thing that you are grieving or the loss has died or hasn't died um to after they've died the process of oscillation really talks about one of the kind of newer models of grief theory which is that you have two areas really you have an area where an emotional area where you are in so much pain from the loss or of the person. And then you have another mode where you're trying to find a normal life. You're trying to work out what your new normal is. You're trying to work out what your new role in society is. And what we know now uh, through research is that people tend to oscillate between the two. So you don't start with you know not accepting anger denial sadness you you start with this pain and you flip between pain and grief work julia samuel uh, is a great resource she would call it grief work because it's work um you start at that point and you oscillate between right now I've got to get my kids to school now I need to make the breakfast now I need to do this and then something in the day or something in the week will be like probably an anchor will be like oh wow gosh I remember such and such person and it takes you back to those emotions and that work and that pain and the oscillation between the two is really what we understand now as the process of real grief and and grieving um, but I think in terms of when 
a person is dying at that point, um, I mean, the, the first bit of work that needs to be done is accepting what's happening. And at that time, just, you know, it is one of the key, most important times in your life, in that person's life. And it's almost like you can't, can't really imagine what's happening. And I don't know if you can ever really prepare for it, truly. I don't know. I, d I don't know if you can. So you, you, there's a, a lot in that answer, actually, Caroline, and just looking into my own grief journey with my sister-in-law, that that was very much a facet of this oscillation. And what, the only way I could describe it in other terms would be waves on a, waves crashing over you and between there'd be a wave that would hit me and then uh, you're right I, then I'd have this period of functionality where I could still fun then function and and and, and work properly or, or still be in my right mind and and then operate and then and then there'd be another wave and then and that would incapacitate me for a short while and then I'd and then I have another period of and and the, and the waves seem to almost like a pebble into into water the, the 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 waves would start to become less over time because initially there was wave uh, normal wave wave and then and then we as weeks and months went by the, the waves still sort of crashed over me but of emotion and of anchoring and of 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 um of memory but it would just be, they would start to become less le less tall because it, it just pictorially i'd feel like they'd crash over my head and then over after a while i feel like there'd be more ripples and i could and then i i started to become a lot better at standing back and observing myself and understanding okay this is another wave it's just it's coming and it's here mm. ride it it's gonna it will it will come and go it will you, Give give it ten minutes. Give yourself ten minutes. It will it it will dissipate and we'll be okay to carry on. And and there's maybe there's a lot in that. But one of the things was not to fully dissociate yourself from that because I think you need to. That's part of the change and assimilation of of, of normalcy again is is interacting with that grief rather than disassociating. But at a certain point, knowing the pattern. And that there is a pattern and that those waves or oscillation will become less and less and less as long as you deal with it appropriately you know through counseling or talk at least and but that's really what helped me and i could start to articulate these waves and then the lessening of the waves and and, and especially when they were quite bad i had to talk about them and just just get them out and but it was it was certainly that 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 was the pattern that i i seemed to experience I, th I think what you've described there with such a great metaphor really is you're describing a process which is called the growing around grief process, which I think is a really worthwhile thing to talk about because you discuss how your waves get less and less tall and perhaps less frequent. And uh, the growing around grief theory is that your grief always stays. It's you know at the beginning it's almost all consuming and it might be that for some time for some months it's just all consuming and you feel like you there is no space for anything else but as time goes on you grow as a human as an individual being you grow around the grief 
and your life grows around it. And I think what's really helpful really is two things, is that bearing that in mind, your life gets bigger and the grief gets smaller. And so for those that maybe are going through some, some grief, it's thinking, okay, you know, over time, this will become less painful. But the second thing with the, with the growing around grief model is that what's reassuring, I think for some people is that grief will always stay there. And, you know, at the time when you, you know, you say you experience these waves, oh my god just stop like this is awful this is so painful but for some people as time goes on I think there's a real fear that they are going to forget the person you know that um that you'll never do that and there's certain ways in which you can try to remember them as well sort of touchstones and things like that but you know the grief never disappears it just gets smaller and your life grows around it I think that's a fantastic analogy, actually, and, and quite a comforting one as well. Mm. Is there anything you could advocate from a self-care perspective when someone's heard such life-changing information mm. and has to carry on living um, and, and hopefully self-caring through the, through the process? Mm. Is there anything from your anecdotal experience you've seen that works? I think, again, I think that it's also situational dependent, isn't it? You know, the death of a child is gonna be completely different to the death of a parent, to the death of a grandparent who's at the end of their, you know, they're, they're 90 years old and they've had a full life, you know, versus somebody who has experienced uh, death of a loved one from something very traumatic or suicide, um, which, you know, is, is really complex. I think in terms of in terms of self care and things that people should should try to do themselves. Um, I mean, firstly, just know who your people are to go to. Who are your people who you can be completely yourself with, um, and you can speak completely openly uh, and not be concerned about the way in which you've come across. Because I think you know we know that those emotions can be anger one minute, sobbing the next, you know, uncontrollable, sometimes not even really making much sense. And I think to be with somebody who makes you feel safe enough to be able to do that is really ideal. Um, and I think that certainly in terms of, you know, when you've got the capacity to really put some work into the grief, um, a, a really excellent, I, I've mentioned her already, um, I promise I'm not her PA, but uh, Julia Samuel, she has got a book uh, which is called Grief Work. And actually, I don't even think you need to buy her book. Um, I think on her website, there is, um, there is a section on grief work. And she provides what she calls pillars of self-care. And they're like, I mean, they're really fundamental and I would just really recommend I mean she's a psychotherapist and a grief specialist I would highly recommend um going to her resource when you have the capacity when you have the time to do that um yeah I, th I think that's really important and and I think as well I think it's worthwhile as well if you're somebody who isn't necessarily directly affected by the grief but you're the friend of somebody or you're the neighbor or something educate yourself on how you can be helpful um, and I think you know 
sometimes it's just really showing up and and saying how are you I'm really don't avoid the person you know I'm really sorry to hear about what happened to Bob um I'm here um I'm gonna pop by in a couple of days don't ask them oh do you what do you do you just give me a call if you need anything well but no they can't they don't have the capacity to think if they need anything pop round in a couple of days and you know say I'm going to the shops what can I get you if they want anything or you know just so that they know somebody's there um and educate yourself on on how to speak to people um so it's less of a taboo I think that's fantastic Carolina I'm going to link um Julia Samuel's um website into the show notes actually so that people can find those fundamental pillars of self-care and I completely agree with you um you almost have to um adopt a my pastoral mindset for people who have been incapacitated by this information because because the amygdala response is so strong that people can forget to eat they can forget to, they, they they can't necessarily sleep there the 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 cornerstones of their life have, have, have moved so it, it disrupts it disrupts diet sleep exercise attention your ability to information process so moving into that pastoral role whereby you don't ask for permission but you just care lovingly care and support the person with as much as possible to cover those bases so that cover the bases of nutrition help alleviate some of the responsibility so that they can sleep um maybe provide just like you said fundamental community just have just showing up and being there as, as a friend as a listening friend but 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 not waiting but in, in a very gentle sense having uh, having a pa active pastoral role but i'll put those i'll put those in the show notes because i think uh, i think that's powerful mm. i'm mindful we've been going for around about an hour now uh, caroline so i'd like to sort of come into land on the conversation and what what i'd just like to do finally really is just throw the ball back into your court and ask you if you could just summarize some key key points really for listeners um this information and this uh interview is absolutely in my mind one of the most essential interviews i've done because it's just fun you know fundamental in 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 everyone's journey in life so it, could you just maybe just come into land on a on a couple of points that that people could just take away yeah sure i mean i think that we can learn a lot from other cultures in the way that we think about death and dying. I think that we're really good at avoiding it as a subject. And it's, it's um, you know, I don't want to say, you know, live every day as if it's your last, or, you know, whatnot, but every day is, is a gift. You know, you're not guaranteed the next day. And, um, you know, I'm not religious myself, but I, th I think we all know, you know, not every day is a given. And I think that if you can bear that in mind and also bear in mind your loved ones and the people that you would be with if they were dying or if they were in their final months of life, find them, talk to them, ask them what's important, what's important to you. Um, there's some really great tools for some people who perhaps really don't want to talk about these discussions or don't want to have them. There's some other options such as, um, you know, doing things like an emotional will, which we'll talk about, you know, 
you know, tell me what's, the, they, they've got a really great way of phrasing questions that you might want to know, but really try and understand, you know, if you were in a situation where you had to make decisions for somebody else, or you had to care for them, make sure you know what they would want. Um, make sure that you know that and that you've asked them and that people know that about you as well, I think is really important. Um, and I think the second thing is that this is so individual. It's such an individual process. It's, you know, it will be different for absolutely everybody. Um, but try and learn, try and educate yourselves, you know, before you need to use services and resources um, so that as much as you can, like a birth plan, as much as you can, have a bit of a plan as to how you want your life or you, you know, your loved one wants their life to end. Yeah, it's morbid, but do you know what? It's much better to know and to understand and to try to achieve those final goals than just to guess and wing it. Caroline Phillips, listen, you're an absolute legend and I really appreciate that. I think that's truly insightful and being prepared with a plan is, is absolutely fundamental. So I just want to thank you for your insights, Caroline, over the last uh, hour and a bit. Um, I have the privilege of talking to you, you know, quite a lot and it's great to in interact with you, but I just think this information is, is, is so key. So, uh, so just thank you so much. Thank you, Owen. Thank mm -hmm. you.